Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle, it's John Lamoureux. Okay, this week we're continuing. As I mentioned before, we're just featuring as many fantastic singer-songwriters as we can these days. And this week is no exception, we're talking to the most wonderful Dar Williams. So Dar, like a lot of people that we've been talking with lately, especially, well if you include a lot of the women, but Glenn Phillips from Toad that we had last week uh, as well, really got their start in that earnest 90s, mid-90s period where a lot of those kind of observational singer-songwritery uh, people were getting record deals. And many of them we still hear from, and many of them we don't, unfortunately. But Dar is still out there, always has been, putting out incredibly high-quality work. This song right here, I wanted to open it with one of my songs, favorite songs of hers. It's called Echoes. Anyway, Dar, in addition to her incredible music output, has been putting has been writing books and publishing books all along as well. She recently released her new one called How to Write a Song That Matters. What I think is really special about this in particular book is that you don't have to be a songwriter to like it. I read it recently and I loved it, but I loved it because not only does it kind of show you a peek behind the curtain of what it's like to write a song, uh, but it also sort of is a, it's a motivator for creative people to just sort of think differently or remove obstacles or get out of their own way or seek inspiration and how to do those things. And I think all of us, to some degree or another, have a spark of creativity or invention within us. And we don't always know how to get there. And a book like this, even though it's about songwriting, it helps to focus you in that direction anyway. So I read the book and I loved it. And a lot of this conversation is about that. It's about the things that songwriters go to, go through, I should say, for their art and to put out things they believe in. It's more difficult than you think. And I had never really thought of it as much until I read Dar's book. Of course, we also get into her long musical history and her albums and some of my favorite songs and a lot of the usual things. It's great. But uh, anyway, I really hope you'll check out the book and check out this, this uh, interview because she's a really sweet, wonderful lady. And to me, it's funny. This interview really kicks off or into another gear. She eventually reaches for the guitar. And when it, it was so interesting doing this over Zoom because when she has that guitar in her lap, she seems so much more comfortable and at ease. And it's like it helps her, you know, grab those ideas that she couldn't have done otherwise. Anyway. Cool lady. She called me from her home in the Hudson River Valley in upstate New York. First and foremost, I don't think, you probably don't know this, but you and I almost spoke about a year ago. Um, one of my listeners, Brian Morris, I believe reached out to you or your people or whatever fairly directly because we were going to try and put together a uh, tribute episode to Nancy Griffith and you had agreed to be on. And it never quite got off the ground. We didn't really get around to doing it too busy, but I've had a sticky note on my desk here for about the last year with your name on it. 
And so for the last year, the name Dar Williams has been staring at me. And I keep thinking, I got to get around to Dar. I got to call. I got to get, I got to do this. And so when I saw that the book was coming out, I thought, okay, now has to be the time. This is perfect. Um, I have to ask, I mean, I read, I finished reading the book and I really loved it. I'm not even a songwriter, but I loved it in the, you know, the same way that I might like a, a self-help book or there's a book uh, that I really love called the war of art. And um, it, instead of the art of war, the war of mm-hmm. art, and it's basically just, you know, it's to kind of help jumpstart creative people to get over some of their, their obstacles and their roadblocks to get past them, to think differently, to feel motivated, to refill their tanks. And I read your book that same way. And I really, really loved it. So I'm curious what, the question you probably get all the time, why was now the time to write this book? Uh, I've been leading a songwriting retreat for 10 years now. So, and I started realizing that there was a path that we were starting to um, create, you know, maybe five years in and then finish the book in 2020. So that was, uh, you know, so eight <laughs> from, from realizing that we had this path to, to getting it all done was about, uh, was a few years. And, the cool thing was that it's really important to to not get in each other's way and not to be prescriptive. It's, it's important to be very open and very like, oh, well, if that works for you, then that that counts. What I was seeing was that there was a wide path, you know, where we had to keep it open and keep that sense of openness. But there did seem to be something directional <laughs> that I wanted to share. Mm. Do you think you could have written this book earlier in your career? I was reading it thinking she's amassed, you know, 20, 30 years almost of experience at this point. And to me, you're, you're a much different songwriter now than you were when you first started. You may feel differently or whatever, just as someone who's been paying attention, if there's a growth there. Do you feel like you were prepared mentally or artistically to have tackled this subject prior to now? You know, I might have been because people ask how my process has changed. And I actually go back to the first song I ever wrote when I was 11. And I realized that it was the same process that I have now. You know, I heard a little piece of melody in my head. It had a little bit of word, some words attached. And I sort of explored that loosely until I came to the next thing and the next thing and kind of sat with this little shoebox in my mind filled with all of the details that I thought would fit a song like this. And, mm-hmm. and then I tied it all together when I was 11. So um, it, uh, arguably I could have, what was interesting was to, to really look at other people and to see that some of those questions I asked myself were helpful as long as I kept them very loose, you know, that we could help each other with these questions. Like, in particular, I have a thing where I say, where did I go? Where did I really go? What mm-hmm. happened? What really happened? How did it feel? How did it really feel? So, um, <laughs> I have that know. quote right here on my phone. I was oh, going to read it to you, but you've got it right there. Good. Yeah. And yes. that's, that's a, um, so, you know, if you're writing about the a planet, you know, the planet of Zaktar, um, you know, I, I wrote about the moon. So I went to some community gardens and I sat in my car and looked at the moon, but yeah. let's say it's on another planet. You still, can close your eyes and and the more you get a sense of that overall terrain the more you can say oh you know it turns out that the staplers on the planet of zaktar are exactly what are going to serve the themes of the song (laughs) so and then where did i really go you know did i 
I know that I'm supposed to say that when I went to this sports game, I was feeling the, the, the energy of the crowd or the whatever, but, you know, really I just, it made me think of this kid on the softball team who was a lesbian who had to sit on the edge of the thing because nobody could handle that. You know, like, mm-hmm. that's where I really went when I went to that sports team. I thought about all of the, the people who had been able to excel because it helps the world include them, you know, like, mm-hmm. so that's where I really went. So things like that, I realized... I never had articulated the question for myself, so I probably couldn't have written it. And then I also had to test drive it with others to make sure that it wasn't an obstacle. It was, yeah. it was helpful. Something that, um, well, there's a lot of things that became very vivid and clear to me when reading the book. One of them is that just the amount of self-belief you have to have that, um, I can't remember if you said this or if I wrote it down this way, but you have to believe that there's always going to be more to discover no matter how many times you've used the same chords. I, I wrote that down. Um, and I was thinking not just you as an artist, but every artist, I mean, you're competing, not just with yourself to find the best idea you can come up with, but is your idea different or more unique than every other songwriter that's ever lived? You know, <laughs> you have to find something unique all the time. That must be a heavy burden. But you also must just have a ton of belief that it's out there, ton of faith. It would, you know, what I tell myself is that it would be to say, it's probably all been written before, would be really tough if then I went out and heard something that I'd never heard before and said, gosh, I have to, you know, then how did how did Lady Gaga come up with bad romance? You know, like, yeah. it, it, you just keep on hearing something new. And so you're kind of mocking yourself if, if you... If you just say, I can't do it because it's all been done before. So um, it's, it, you know, in some ways it's believing in yourself. But on the other hand, it's sort of lowering the bar to say, well, so what if it's been written before? <laughs> it feels new to me. <laughs> right, you know? right. And, and, just, and just allowing yourself to be excited about um, creating something that feels new to you. You know, that counts. For yeah. me, that counts too. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, the other th- one of one of the many other things that I kind of took away from the book was the intentionality behind your words, especially your words. And I'm going back and listening to as I'm reading the book, I'm going back and listening to all your stuff, and I'm thinking about it's interesting. So I was listening to well, part of the book. <laughs> I'll tell you more about this in a second. Part of it, you were talking about making work being the deity of space and time. Mm-hmm. And how you're the god of that world. You can, you make the rules about what fits and what doesn't, and uh, what makes sense and what doesn't. Right before I read that section, I was listening to, um, and the god descended. Step through this trampled wall, the unhinged door betrays it all that far within our faith. We were all waiting The broken glass reflects the haze It shines like endless holy days Struggling to remember But they're celebrating When a God
I was what before I'd even gotten to this part. I remember thinking, well, she's fitting a lot of words in there. There's a lot of words, you know, and uh, they work. But I thought, I wonder if how she feels about that. And then 10 minutes later, I'm reading about your space and time, you know, and fit it, making everything fit. Do you live with, and you kind of vividly sort of touch on, touch on this a couple of times in the book. I'd never been so aware of what it must be like to live with a song that you know isn't finished or you cut a corner or you took the lazy road in a word here and there. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you feel that very actively? Uh, yes, yes. I mean, I'm happy to say that there are only a few songs where I think, huh, well, okay, I haven't, there's that word, you know, <laughs> that, uh -huh. nice that doesn't sound, it's a little bit, um, you know, I finally, I, I finally just settled on that word and, um, and I'm okay, I can make peace with it, but okay, there it is. <laughs> uh -huh. So the fact that I have to sing it over and over again is kind of great because if uh -huh. I do cut a corner, I'm like, you know, you know how that feels when you're standing uh -huh. on the stage. And also I'm, I'm loose in my life. Like I, I'm, I have what I call high squalorance, which means that, <laughs> you know, I love clean spaces and I love uh -huh. it when I clean my space and, but I can live with piles and piles and I'm not allergic to dust. Uh -huh. <laughs> so that said, I love getting the right word and I love waiting. Yeah. And I, what I would rather do is say, look, everybody, call me precious, but I'm going to take as long as it takes to write this song, two years, two months, a week, you know, and wait for the right word or <laughs> search for the right word. And so again, instead of tightening myself up and saying, where's that damn word? I, I loosen myself up to say, look, I'm an artist who just really kind of hangs out with this stuff for a long time because yeah. I do love, I, I don't have a lot of squalorance in from myself when it comes to something that I just kind of go, oh. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. it doesn't make sense because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> right. Um, right. So yeah, I love it. I love finding that the, 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 the most used, you know, definitely you tell that story about needing to go back into the studio just to change an, uh, to a, the, and what that might mean, but I'm, I'm imagining, I can see vividly what it must feel like to you to have to live with the word that you knew was second best for the rest of your career. And that's got to just eat at you, you know? It, it, <laughs> I think that's a good, I think it does eat at me. It does I mean, it. Not, not, not to the point that I lose a limb, but it's, it's, um, you know, it's there. And like, and it's also kind of fun to go like, what was I really thinking like there's a song where I say um, that uh, you know a person they they see they see the words and then you know they hear the words but then they really see you and I was like wait a minute is it do they do they see you but then they really hear you like which is the way that they really receive the truth about you <laughs> and going back and forth and going as if as if this is all real you know as if yeah. this is totally scientific say, thinking no it's definitely. They hear one thing because you tell them one story, but then they see the truth. And like, glad I spent a week <laughs> figuring that one out. Um, but I do, but I do love that. I read the first third of the book on a plane, and um, while I was reading, I was listening to Rick James, mm. and uh, I was just imagining you're so you're writing so eloquently about choices and word choices and living with these things, and I thought. While I'm reading your book and thinking about you, 
she blew my mind 69 times from right. Rick James is playing. And I thought, I wonder what choices Rick James is making. You know, <laughs> it's a very different thing. And, and I kind of thought for a minute, do you ever, do you ever seek to, or strive to write a simple song? Do you ever, is that okay with you to write something poppy and light oh, yeah. and less thought out, I guess, or less, you know what I mean? Less 100%. worried about. Okay. I call well. I, this is this is the other thing that I came to because people would say, "Is this song to this or to that?" And so I, I probably would have come to this with my own songs because I have a lot of them and they have a real range of topics. But there's something I call the voice of the song, you know, capital V, and that is really just letting yourself hear what the song is. So a song that's kind of wide open and a loose weave, like she's a very funky girl, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like, it's, you actually don't want to, if you're on that groove, you know, you can let the rhythm and the music and the feel and how did you feel and how does it feel really guide the process. And actually, you don't, if you're lucky enough to to be writing that song that's so full of, I mean, it endures, like the feel of it, it could have been written yesterday. I mean, it's just so great and very consistent. Like, it's kind of... (laughs) It's, it's kind of dirty and it's it's yeah. it makes you feel all sorts of things that it's supposed to make you feel and that's that's the voice of the song so you follow the voice and i just tend to um you know i was a playwright before i was a songwriter so i'm interested in like the story and the backstory and the context and one of my people at the retreat um said something fantastic that's not in the book um <laughs> i wish it were he said i love your un omniscient narrators, like the ones who don't see what we, the listeners, are seeing. So that's what I love from my playwriting thing, like a person who just like walks right up to the edge of the cliff and's like, okay, everybody, I'm just going to take this other, st- I can't see what's next, but I'm going to take another step, you know, and we all like, it's a cliff. So um, <laughs> it's, it's, I think it's great that there are a lot of musicians out there for whom the voice of the song is this, you know, propulsive, fun, repetitive, danceable yeah. thing, and they and they follow that. That's you know, music is a voice to follow, yeah. and I respect that. And I have songs that are more like that than than others. And by understanding that every song has its voice, I know how to say it on my way and just let it be fun and mm-hmm. let it be more simple. Although, as you've mentioned, <laughs> my songs, you know, yeah, I, I would love, I, I think I can die if I like could finally just write one. Of, if I wrote a Rick James song, I would. <laughs> that would be fun. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was just, I mean, your songs are so poetic and beautiful and it's clear. I mean, you've probably heard this a billion times. I, I think of you as kind of an observational songwriter. Cause there's so many that tell stories at one thing in particular, I was, while I was reading the book, I was thinking, I was reminding, I was thinking about that song by Train, Hey Soul Sister, mm. and what a deceptively fun rhyme it is, Hey Soul Sister, Ain't That Mr. Mister on the radio. And I thought, that's that's such a fun, vivid rhyme that uh, many of us can understand what he means, yeah. but it has to take balls to decide that's the rhyme I'm going to use in this song. You know, who thinks that you have to have such belief again going back to kind of what i was saying that that's the right rhyme for this song i don't care what other people think we're going to talk about mr mister here for a second and people either get it or they don't you know in fact one of my favorite kind of little rhyming lyrics of yours is on uh, time be my friend and you say i'll be your greatest receiver your goldenest retriever 
friend Though I have not been so kind to you Always asked where you were going Though you had no way of knowing Or no time I have not been kind to you Time, meet me here I meet you here We'll go walking for a little while And I know what I will say I know there's only now and yesterday Oh, time, I meet you here That's just such a clever, fun little way to describe something, you know? I loved it. Um, well, you, again, the thing that can lower the stakes, if you're if you're writing a song, instead of saying, is this the best thing? You can say, well, what's the voice of this song? And that, you know, Time Be My Friend is a person who's saying, I really have to um, find some more humility here, or I'm going to just, you know, uh-huh. I'm not going to... If I can't make some kind of um, relationship with time that's less uh, pushy and presumptuous and asking what's going to happen next, I'm just, every present moment is going to die. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to die. So, uh, you know, how do I, and the voice is this very, it's almost like you, I mean, I would say the voice of the song is, is a narrator who is kind of bowing down to time saying like, I've, I haven't been a good friend. Like, so it's kind of like how you would meet a friend in the cafe and say, you know, I'm sorry I didn't answer all those emails. I just, uh, <laughs> I have no excuse, you know. And right. uh, so it's kind of got that, like, uh, I'm just going to lay it down feel. And uh-huh. and that can have a certain kind of playfulness, kind of a, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to find the um, uh, Ar- Aristotelian definition <laughs> mm-hmm. of, of aging in time. It's like, oof, gosh, I'll just... Look, I'll just be a golden retriever. Like I'll just, just, I'm gonna wag my tail, be happy Uh about like the, you know, throw me a bone. Yeah, it's gonna be the best day of my life. And then tomorrow, throw me another bone. That'll be the best day of my life. Yeah, I loved it. So saying like, I'll just try to be a good dog here (laughs) is very much within like the humility of of that place. So it fit, and I didn't Uh have to go. Oh man, you know that's weird. That's Uh gonna come out of left field. It's like no, that's that's what this person would say yeah. that's consistent yeah i don't even know if goldenest is a word yeah. but i'm so grateful you put it there because it, <laughs> it's a word in that in the reality of that song and, I it, love and it. the reality of that narrator and i have to give some i i actually f- uh, floated this one to the retreaters and marissa levy is a she actually i said your golden retriever and i did want to say your most golden retriever your something uh-huh. else. i think it needs another syllable and they were feeling that thing in the voice that person who's you know you know like when you're just going about your day and you make up a word and you don't care uh-huh. you know sure just like, of course <laughs> you know like <laughs> you know um it's right now yeah <laughs> so so you so you just and you're with somebody who you can do that with and you're just mm-hmm. so they they were feeling that and the marissa said what about golden nest 
and mm. uh, and I said, oh yeah, that's you, you know. But we were all feeling it. I mean, I'll give her credit, but we were sure. all feeling that kind of. This is a person who isn't going to say, well, that word doesn't exist. <laughs> Because mm-hmm. <laughs> right. when you're talking to a friend, you're just like, oh, thank you. know, You know what I'm saying, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I loved it. Um, I was thinking, too, about um, when you were talking about heavy words, words mm-hmm. that kind of draw too much attention to themselves and distract from the rest of the song and how swear words can be that way sometimes. Mm-hmm. I was reminded of, of all people, and I, this... This one line in a James Taylor song has always stuck with me because it felt so out of place. James Taylor, of all people, I remember on the Hourglass album, and there was a song in there called, I wrote it down because I couldn't remember, Enough to Be On Your Way. And it's this beautiful little song, as most songs that James Taylor sings are. And then he mentions, he refers to his fucked up family. And hearing that in a James Taylor, in a soft little James Taylor song is like, whoa, what? You said that? You of all people, you know, mm-hmm. like that was the perfect thing to say right there. Yeah. And uh, I'm not questioning he's James Taylor. He must have had a really good reason for using that word right then. But um, it was, I had never thought of it like that before that using these heavy words, and I'm I'm, using, mm-hmm. I'm talking about the F word, but it could be anything, is right. just like dropping this little bomb that's kind of a distraction and makes people have to be thinking or held, they're held up on that word versus the entirety of the song, you know? Yeah, and I was hoping to point to the fact that that exists and that there are also really kind of some heavy um, musical choices we can make because you can, I, you know, let's say that, that, you know, James Taylor said, you know, this is an interesting, for me, this song is really going to make sense if within this, you know, gentle moment we drop this heavy thing because that's how it felt. You know, like, here I am in this beautiful, you know, there's the couch, there's this, there's that, there's a raging parent, you know, and mm-hmm. and into this world where you're just trying to, to craft together some peace, that thing, you know, that parent comes in, and it and to to affect that, you, to describe what that looks like, you have to say fucked up, and you, and you like that, you know, and my guess is that James Taylor has uh, a lot of people around him, as well as himself, to check in his instincts, which are mm-hmm. fantastic, right? So yeah. to, to check in with, to say, it's almost like a capital, you know, when people uh, have their political capital, like, mm-hmm. okay, I, I gave this guy my oil bill, so now I can actually save some children, you know, <laughs> <laughs> using her political, you can tell right. what my <laughs> politics are. Um, yes. So, uh, you know, so it's like, I, I'm, I have the trust of my audience, and I can put this word in, and they'll know that it wasn't gratuitous. And that's a really great moment to get to that a lot of us artists won't get to. You know, the audience is going to be like, this is what I saw at the concert. This is all I know of you. And why did you choose this word? Um, but within the corpus, you can make some weighty decisions. Mm-hmm. And also, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And it's and it's great, too, if you want to. I mean, the F-bomb, I hear it a lot, and I rarely think, Oh, that was a great choice. Unless uh-huh. it's like you know, in the genre, and then sure. and then f bombs everywhere, and that's completely appropriate to the genre. Yeah. But in my genre, you know, the singer songwriter stuff. But then, as as you as I as I was writing, you know, even the word agony, you know, mm-hmm. it can just be like, really, man, was it? Yeah, agony? it's a heavy word. Yeah, and 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 that person might say, yeah, I really did that exactly on purpose. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I noticed again. I'm going back to the intentionality of words that you just take for granted. I was curious to how production factors into your thinking or or approach to a song. For instance, 
I was listening to Closer to Me. You can leave this house, leave this town. Leave it all to me, or you'll never leave the ground. Look at that tiny screen's too small for you. I think you should learn to dream just like the dreamers do. And I really, that's one of my favorite songs of yours. And there's a drum, the drums are mixed slightly higher in the, in the mix on that song. And, um, and I remember thinking is I the, in the transfer from, of a song from something you're plucking away on your bed to something that, to the thing that goes through the producer and go, comes out on a CD does the meaning get enhanced, diluted, confused, lost sometimes in that process? Like, does the do drums that need to be slightly above in the mix than they would be normally need to be there to drive a certain point home in a song like that? Generally, I would say nothing is ever quite what I thought it would be when I wrote it, and it's ninety nine percent better because of that. In, when it comes to the production stuff. And I learned that when I was working with a lot of great musicians in um, on an album called The Green World. And yep. um, these incredible musicians came in, like Graham Maybe from who works a lot with Joe Jackson. And, I love him. He's uh, been on here. He's Yeah. And it's um, I, these are also like sterling humans. They're just <laughs> so nice. And Steve Holly, who's worked with... I remember Steve Holly came in <clears throat> and I said, I really... For the song Spring Street, I really want this kind of propulsive thing, like four on the floor, just pulsing like a like a like a fashion show gone awry. Just like people kind of on this catwalk and <laughs> mm -hmm. this him. And he's such a nice person. He's like and he's first of all trying to see what I'm seeing in my mind. And he's also trying to envision it. And then he said, I think it will ruin the song, but I will do it. <laughs> Uh -huh. <laughs> He's British. So it's like I think it will ruin the song, but I will do it. And so he and he did, and it was actually what I liked. But then he said, "Well, what about with the mallets instead of with the sticks?" And you know, so mm. that it's it, it's propulsive, but it's not too heavy. And and uh, there was Stuart Smith, who is now in the Eagles. I said, I, I want a little crazy lady sound right in the middle of this. And he's like, what about this? He plays this gorgeous jazz chord. I'm like, no. I said, like, more like this. And, uh -huh. and the producer's like, oh, I caught that on tape. We'll put that in. So, so some things I, I was glad for. But generally, when I heard the final album and I remembered things that they, the musicians had done that I hadn't liked up front but gave myself a few days to, to get used to, those were really my favorite moments. And so it's like, Choose the right musicians, let them do their thing, let yourself be surprised, and, and look at that synergy of what you were hearing as you sat cross-legged on your bed with your guitar and what finally happened. And, and, um, 
And if it really sounds, um, and then develop the instinct to say, no, no, that's really not what I heard, you know, mm. <laughs> and, right. and, and just to be able to step in and to know that these people are such great sterling humans that they will understand yeah. and, and work with you. So I did the same group of musicians. We worked with the same group of musicians on something called Beauty of the Rain. Just two umbrellas, one late afternoon You don't know the next thing you will say This is your favorite kind of day It has no walls The beauty of the rain Is how it falls, how it falls how it falls And there's nothing wrong But there is something more And sometimes you wonder What you love her for She says you've known Her deepest fears Cause she's shown you A box of stained glass tears it can be you. And I can hear the difference between sort of the choreographed sounds mm. of the green world and the looser, let them do their thing sounds yeah. Of, yeah. of Beauty of the Rain. And I, have, I, I appreciate both, um, but uh, I was so, I, there's a lot of ways that people sort of unfurl themselves on the next one. And it's a beautiful, it's like magic, you know, mm -hmm. let, let the magic happen. Mm -hmm. um, and and then decide if it really helps or hurts the narrative. And, you know, because that's at the end of the day, songs are themes, songs are narratives, they're stories, and you get to say um, if the production is is helping the narrative, even if it's in ways that you hadn't expected. Speaking of uh, production choices, when I listen back to Mortal City, um, it starts off with as cool as I am. Which is a very peppy, pop songy, you know, made for the radio kind of song. And I wonder, it's this isn't the book. This is my own question. I'm wondering if you're kicking off your second album, second. It's not really your second, but it's the second one most people know with a song that is not, you know, an acoustic folk torch song singer songwriter song on purpose to announce to the world, you guys, I'm not just what you think I am. I'm, I'm other things too. Yeah, I, I think that the record company and and people around them 
felt like what you were saying was exactly what they were doing. And, uh -huh. and actually, I just spoke with Nicole Sanders, who I knew at uh, KSCA in LA, and she was this really interesting, you know, this is hot station, and they were doing this amazing stuff. It helped me get my audience in LA, big time. And, um, but she, I remembered her from, you know, standing next to somebody at my record label saying, Oh, I'm really glad that she went this direction with this song. And mm. um, because this, you know, the station's getting a little tighter. You know, we played When I Was a Boy, which is a Travers Pick folk song. I won't forget when Peter Pan came to my house, took my hand. I said I was a boy. I'm glad he didn't check. I learned to fly. I learned to fight. I lived a whole life in one night. We saved each other's lives out on the pirate deck And I remember that night when I'm leaving a late night with some friends And I hear somebody tell me it's not safe Someone should help me I need to find a nice man to walk me home When I was a boy I scared the pants off of my mom Climbed what I could climb up And I don't know how I survived I guess I knew the tricks that all boys knew And you can walk me home But I was a boy Um, but you know it's getting a little tighter and and uh, we really needed this uh, in order to play her again um, but she didn't say it in you know she was also saying Dar's got to be Dar it's just fortunate <laughs> that yeah. we can keep on right. you know uh, she should be Dar as opposed to just creating something that we could play but still interestingly you know if I'm speaking from an artistic point of view really just from an artistic point of view there was a whole thing about using drum loops in folk music. There was mm -hmm. kind of like, oh, you know, and what is folk music? And mm -hmm. there was just a lot of conflict around people who were diverging from calling themselves folk musicians. And I listened to the song and I was like, <laughs> this is a song about like somebody kind of recognizing her inner hipness and, uh -huh. <laughs> you know, stepping out and saying, you know, that thing you do that you try to disguise when you compare me to other women and you're like, wait, it's just my aesthetic, you know, mm -hmm. is it's bullshit. And, and, and it had to step out and that's not mandolins and that's drum loops. Like yeah. my, we were playing with sound and, and, and he's like, look, I'm just going to lay this on top of the drums. And I was like, well, that's so songs will have a production voice as well. And, mm -hmm. and a narrative voice. And I was like, okay, we're going to choose this because this is best for the song and hopefully not alienate people within this this thing. And, and and I think we did alienate them, and I didn't care because that was right for the song. And yes, then my record label's like, uh, this is going first on the album. Uh -huh, right. <laughs> <laughs> and Dar made a single, and we're very proud of Dar because uh -huh. she just made our job easier. So that's definitely, you know, in the mix, yeah. shall yes. we say. And that's yes. okay with me. I mean, you know, right. I loved working with them, and I was happy that they had something they could bring to a, you know, a, a punched-up song for the radio stations. Sure. I was curious too, if you ever, you talk about in the book, having that phrase, there's a light rain falling on the night train. And 
walking around with that phrase and it feeling it feeling good you like it now i got to find the right song and you were talking too about kind of carrying these eight bars of music in your head that and i wonder if you when you stumble on an idea whether it's a melody line or a line of lyrics or whatever and you feel especially good about one or the other can't be both just one or the other <laughs> do you think i got to hold on to this because i need to find music that i like to put with this lyric that i like so much does that make sense i can't just toss this line away because i'm really proud of this line so i need to hold on to it until i find music that i like as much as the line absolutely absolutely really? it's more a line of music that's looking for the right words but you're absolutely right and and there'll just be something that um actually if you want to hold on for a sec i'll pull out my guitar and show you Ooh, yes example. please yeah. nice so an example of that is uh sorry mostly in tune okay so an example of that would be this thing that came into my mind that went this thing that came into my mind you know i was noodling around with my guitar and i went na, 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 na. And I just thought, oh, gravitas, you know, mm -hmm. how, you know, and that thing, it's an E7. And so it's got a big full E in the, in the chord. And, um, and it's, you know, so it's not, na, 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 you know, that's just sad. But this is much more like textured. And I, so I, so I worked with it uh, and, tried just a bunch of things. And so, um, you know, Beth Nielsen Chapman does this. She, she says that she'll just do a series of, of vowel sounds just that. Mm. And then, and then I was thinking, you know, kind of what, as I say, what's up with me, you know, the, mm -hmm. like my two big pieces of science coming into this are what sounds pretty and what it sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I just did a lot of what sounds pretty, what sounds interesting, uh, lyrically. And I came to, uh, <laughs> All is come undone. All is come undone. All is come undone and vanished with the sun. And then I had to create a whole story around that, and I did. So, <laughs> so that's um. But but there was a lot of like all is well and done. It's been said and done. You know, <laughs> no more one on one. I don't know, like a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff. But all is come undone. You know, was is not very grammatically correct. You know, mm -hmm. and that was appropriate to that kind of. Mm -hmm. Who cares? You know. Yeah, yeah. There's so much sadness and and melancholy <laughs> and and texture here. Who cares if it's yes. not? You know, all is come undone, and it has kind of Victorian fainting couch thing, and then, and that's what I built around. So, um, and that felt interesting to me. There's a, <clears throat> I was listening to a lot of Thomas Hardy <laughs> mm -hmm. audiobooks as I was outside in the autumn, you know, creating this stone path, you know, pandemic project, and. Sure. Um, and uh, there are all of these kind of ladies of the manor who lose their mind. And, and so that's, I created a song that had to do with that. But so, yeah, it's, it's, I think that's part of the fun is, 
having something and the song as cool as I am which is really um was interesting I didn't I wasn't waiting but I had um there's this line I will not be afraid of women and and there is it's just this terrible moment when you realize you're just with like this human mind game who is actually just trying to destabilize you Mm -hmm. so that you'll stay you know Mm -hmm. and there's like Mm -hmm. I I know that you're you happen to be insecure about your boobs I just happen to notice boobs on every other woman that's walking down the street but that's just like me it's not about like like what's your problem so I was you know writing something that was like you know, I will not be afraid of women, you know, like this kind of <laughs> breast beating ballad. And then as I was in the car and, uh, and I just heard as cool as I am, <clears throat> as cool as I am. And I thought as cool as I am, as cool as I, what, so uh, what makes me so cool? Like, you know, I'm such a snappy uh-huh. dresser. No, you know, <laughs> and, and I was like, Oh, as cool as I am, I will not be afraid of women. And like, and I thought, Oh my gosh, that's right. That's that, you know, so it's sort of like I was like, as cool as I am, and then I sort of cast about my little fragments that I'd been working on. Like, uh-huh. Hey, that's actually accurate. This isn't me saying, hey, I'm not going to be threatened by women. It's like, it's it's more like that song, like, as cool as I am, what were you thinking? Right. You know, like, do you know, you know, like, how many uh-huh. times I hung out at Womanist House at Wesleyan? You know, like, <laughs> right. you're not going to get this one past me. And, you know, you're gone. Uh-huh. So, so I let the the sort of the I let the fragments of melody and lyric kind of meet one another as well. Yeah. You know, I go into that little playroom. I love it. I wanted to draw some attention to the last your last album. I'll meet you here um, because I like it a lot. There's a couple of songs in there in particular that I wanted to ask you about. One being Berkeley. Let us begin. Bay waters, Berkeley's daughters called me to be an aquarium child. I was the crazed model for somebody's novel, bought from the bookstore where hell was on trial. And there we unraveled and dutifully traveled out of our minds. Something better. The old world was fading, the canvas was waiting. Pale eucalyptus and lavender light. Recorded the mayhem, talked with our brethren. They yelled at the sun and they wandered at night. And everything mattered. Um, because I love the, I mean, you you paint a picture of what life must be like in Berkeley, kind of, you know, and uh, the tensions of the different people. And where is, again, I go, I go back to observational being the word that I think of when I think of Dar Williams songwriting. I hope that's okay. I don't know. Sure. Um, Great. Okay. Is that, what, what was the spark for Berkeley? I don't remember the actual, you know, and I, it's weird cause I usually can, but, um, uh, I think it was um, the and it kind of had a, a kind of a sad circusy feel to it, and I'm like, I love "What's that. a sad circus?" Berkeley, <laughs> Berkeley, you know, like kind of a, like the kind of a the the, the pageant, the pageant uh-huh. of life, and uh-huh. uh, the tragicomic pageant, and that mm-hmm. is Berkeley. You know, it's it's 
you know, it's the guy who stole my underwear <clears throat> when I left the the laundromat for two seconds and like, oh, that's so and so. He uses it for his art, and, I, and you know, <laughs> being twenty, like. Well, I guess if you really needed my underwear for his art, you know, that's valid. <laughs> so the um I I started to fill what you know, my mental file cabinet. You uh -huh. know, I the way I describe it is like you, that's the moment, you know, you like the okay, the tragicomic pageant of Berkeley. That's my silver key. I'll I'll go into the file drawer called that world and pull out the Berkeley file and out of the Berkeley file, I'll pull the stuff around what it was like to live there when I was 20, but also um, what it was like to keep on coming back because that's, you know, Berkeley changes and I change. And mm -hmm. um, so, so that's, I think going to be more that, you know, stories move, you know, mm. so what it was like then, but then, you know, now looking back, like I'm guessing the guy who's still my underwear, didn't use it for his art. And, um, <clears throat> and the guy who, you know, had the law books in his shopping cart, who said he was going to become a lawyer, maybe he wasn't going to become a lawyer. Uh, you know, so using the um, uh, Berkeley as sort of like that filter of how I age and how my my sensibility has aged mm -hmm. was interesting to me. And then, yeah. and then there was that, like, what really happened. And the, what really happened is that I didn't change that much and Berkeley didn't change that much. You know, it's super expensive, like super, I mean, uh -huh. of course it's yeah. expensive. It's gorgeous. Yeah. And also they, they take care of a lot of services there because they're a bunch of hippies. So they, they <laughs> care about runoff and wastewater yeah. and how they treat each other even and how they, so, um, you know, cleaning up after your dogs. And so it's just, it's, of course, everyone wants to live there. That's a given. But there's still people who have very radical politics who who care about affordability and who do all that mm -hmm. stuff. And I'm a person who pays a mortgage and owns a car. But I still have a lot of those radical things. And uh, it's faint sometimes. <laughs> but it's there. And I that's what I treasure. I treasure the fact that it felt so strong then. And I treasure the fact that I go back there and remember that there's still some strength of those mm -hmm. feelings now. Mm -hmm. What about, um, I never knew? like a stranger, I felt lucky just to let inside. I said, oh love, now tell me what I'll have to change and what I'll have to hide for love. Oh, it's shifting into something else. I thought that was the price. Chorus is just such a gore. It's so gorgeous. It melts me every time I hear, I hear it. What's the story of I never knew? I think that luckily the words I never knew came into this. So that was the that was the silver key. Like I never knew what Dar, mm -hmm. <laughs> and and certainly what was up with me. I I'm 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 divorced, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't 
<laughs> that I, I just tried to make sure that talking about the divorce was not going to be interesting to me, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Like I, so I went back in time and thought about what it was like when, you know, t- to go from minimizing myself in a relationship to really feeling like um, a, that actually love was something that allowed you to, to tell your, tell the truth, you know, mm-hmm. uh, more, more than usual. So, um, and it's, and it's, and it's a dance as you know, <laughs> but, um, so, but I had that melody that went, I never knew na 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 And, you know, that's kind of a, that's what we call a wide interval, like na 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 And, and, uh, so it's dramatic and it's very, you know, kind of 19th century. Like you can imagine that being on, on a big piano mm-hmm, piece mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of swells. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, this is going to um, hold big emotions. Like so, mm-hmm. and people are like, oh gosh, it's personal. And like, uh, you know, I'm so happy to to be able to chart any terrain, whether it's inside my head or outside my head. <laughs> mm-hmm, <laughs> it doesn't feel personal. It's just like, well, that's what I found, you know. Right. And you can always lie and say it's about somebody else. But so I went into that terrain knowing that I could kind of look for the big emotion stuff. And uh, and that's what I did on this. And um, But it it was the melody that, that brought me into knowing that I could kind of expansive language and um, range of emotion. Um, I wanted to, we have some Patreon supporters and I always throw it out to them who I'm interviewing and they can submit questions that they'd like. Um, a couple people are pretty passionate about you and your work and want to want me to throw out some questions to you. Number one, Brian Morris, who I mentioned earlier, um, he was curious about the story of mortal city. Comes through every crack. She puts her hand up to the radiator's broken, so she has to use electric heat. And tonight was the first date with the brother of the guy she worked next to. He lived a couple streets away. He listened, he had things to say. She asked him up for dinner sometime. Sometime was tonight. The radio gave updates on the ice storm while she made the dinner. They said from all the talk, you shouldn't drive or even walk. And this just in. We're asking everyone to turn out their power they needed at the hospital. She ran around pulling plugs, then she called him up. Maybe now they shouldn't meet He said that he would brave the streets She met him at the door With a blanket and a candle Saying, I heard it on the radio I had to turn my power off he said um, You talk about it in the book a few times But summarize for us what, what Mortal City's about it was this moment that's it it's like you know when you're trying to light a lighter and then finally it catches and mm-hmm. my um you know people say all the time you should write a song about you know and my um roommate sarah davis said gosh i think you're going to want to write a song about this thing and she's a really 
I was like, you, you know, because <laughs> like, she, she's so, she was so wise and insightful. And I, so I listened a little bit more closely if she was saying that. And she said, well, they turned off all their lights in Philadelphia when there was an ice storm. And I thought, oh, that's nice. You know, that's, yeah. that shows, and, and that's a song about how people are better than you think that they are. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, at the end of the day, we're all humans, you know, neighbors. And, and that's great. And I have songs like that, but, um, but, then she said, no, the businesses turned off their lights. And you would watch a, a building go down all at once. And that was Sarah's gift also. Just, she just gave me this instant uh, heavy image of a whole business going down. And, you know, there's such a thing that we can hide behind with businesses to say it's just business. Like, I can't mm-hmm. turn off these lights because business has to go and it's not mm-hmm. my, I, I don't have any voice in this. Mm-hmm. But somehow the human voice came through when the radio presenter said, everybody turn off their electricity. Suddenly, you know, a, a corporation said, oh, people could die if we don't yeah. do this. And our workday ends right now mm-hmm. and, um, and turn off everything. And, you could, and it was visible. So mm-hmm. the way that even corporations... Um, are made up of people to, to quote Mitt Romney, um, you know. But just to, to recognize that uh, the depth of that human moment, I just I don't know what happened. And then I um, went to uh, my guitar and I and to be honest, it was a long time ago, so I don't remember. But I had this progression, and as I say in the book. <laughs> I don't know what the, those chords are so long. It's like the B over the this or the uh-huh. suspended. Or, but I just called it heart monitor, you know, <laughs> or, you know, life support. Ooh, yeah, good. Yeah. It's sort of like if we, if you combine the machinery with like the, the, the emotions underneath it, like, is she yeah. okay? Is she going to be okay? Oh my gosh, yeah. life changes so fast. It, it would have to me that, you know, just really complicated chords. So yeah. um, I, kind of got into this repetitive thing in my mind and then I did what you know some people do is I just I create stories you know and mm-hmm. it's really what humans do like if you put a popsicle stick up mm-hmm. to a rock and you're like what's the story here it's like mm-hmm. well the popsicle stick is making the rock feel really fat you know like mm-hmm. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> so, um, and, and there's a conflict so I I imagined a person coming into a city and feeling that coldness and remembering what it was like to, to, to move into cities and just to feel like they were so cold and impersonal and just and that just became a sort of a living experience of life is cold, people are cold. And then, you know, that one moment that you have that great conversation at the bodega with the person behind yeah. the thing and then, and then it uh-huh. starts to open up. So I had that cynical person and then a person really sort of drawing her out and saying, don't you, like, even in the 90s, you could live someplace. You know, we had this amazing thing called FedEx mm-hmm. <laughs> or this miracle <laughs> called faxing. You know, right. so it's like you don't really have to live cheek by jowl with other people. Uh-huh. That's a uh-huh. choice. And and uh-huh. I and I wanted to capture that moment of recognition where she um, where she suddenly understands that the whole world is, you know, people wanting to be around other people Good and point. the warmth of that. Yeah, um, that's beautifully said. He also wanted to know if there's ever going to be more cry, cry, cry. My name is Dodge, then you know that. 
It's written on the chart there at the foot end of the bed. They think I'm blind, but I can't read it. But I've read it every word, and every word it says is death. So confession, is that the reason that you came? Get it off my chest before I check out of the game. Since you mention it, well, there's 13 things I'll name. 13 crosses high above the cold Missouri waters. August 49, North Montana. The hottest day on record and the forest tinder dry. Lightning strikes in the mountains. I was crew chief at the jump base. I prepared the boys to fly. Pick the drop zone. C-47 comes in low. Feel the tap upon your leg that tells you go. See the circle of the fire down below. Fifteen of us dropped above the cold Missouri water. <laughs> it was so hard to get it together the second time. Oh, really? <laughs> and, and you know, it was 15 years apart. So uh -huh. 15 years from now, <laughs> I mean, I might just be full-time, uh, I, I call it the stay-at-home stay homesteading. <laughs> uh, just, <laughs> um, I don't know. But it, I... I I don't, I don't imagine that there will be. But my hope is that other people, you know, create um, those things. I mean, I love mm -hmm. Lucy and Richard, so, you know. Yeah. And, um, but uh, Richard has been, uh, hasn't toured here, you know, in a couple of years, not just because of the pandemic. He's writing mm -hmm. poetry now, and that's, that's cool. Mm -hmm. And Lucy is always part of different uh, collaborations. So, right. um, so the question is, like, what's the next trio? What's the next harmony? Uh -huh singer-songwriter cool. project that other people will do. Or, or that's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, okay. I, we also heard from uh, one of our listeners, Joe Powers. He sends a lot of love your way. Um, Green World was a major album for him back in the day. And um, he was also a veteran of the U.S. Navy. And so there's some lines in the song, We Learned the Sea, that mm. really mean a lot to him. Tomorrow we land and my ship has been sold. Now losing this boat is worth scarce a mention. I think of the crew most of all the first ensign for all we learn the sea. Guiding a ship, it takes more than your skill. Is the compass inside as the strength of your will? The first dance and watched as tempest all tried me. I sang in the wind as if God were beside me for all we learned the sea.
Um, one in particular, he says, I'm familiar with the expression to say someone is out to sea is another way of saying they're struggling mentally. Is we learn to see a message of encouragement to those living with mental illness? Not specifically. It is actually, there is a specific, there are some specific thoughts that I had. I, I and I hope this doesn't, uh, Jerome, I hope this doesn't uh, affect how you see it because it, it what I think what you're picking up is accurate. Um, and I was, um, some friends of mine were talking about their parents always fighting and that they would sort of hide out in their room and, and kind of the older child would parent the, the younger child and explain and translate what was happening in a way that wouldn't be uh, frightening to her younger sister. And, and it was such a beautiful story of how an eight-year-old would do that, that that's kind of what I saw. And I put it, but I did imagine them sort of being adrift, you know, kind mm -hmm. of with very few resources and, you know, marshalling those resources. Like I'm the captain of the ship. It's like, well, you're also an eight year old kid. Well, but you know, I've got, I've got this ensign here and I've got to mm -hmm. teach her and show her that you can navigate these things. And we're going to, things are going to change now. We're not even going to have a ship. Okay. Well, we learned how to navigate and we'll, we'll navigate by the stars on land now on our feet. And, um, but I was feeling the, the, um, the burden, you know, how much was on the shoulders of that person to try to marshal up those resources. And I think that that's definitely analogous to when we're trying to help each other through, uh, mental health struggles, you know, I mean, I, I have a lot of sense memory of, of that. And, mm -hmm. um, and it's also, you know, trying to solve our problems when we don't have all the resources, you know, an eight year old, she probably didn't know what she was doing. And it was probably a big burden on her to have mm -hmm. to take care of another person. And um, that can also be analogous to mental illness, you know, we are trying to just get through the day and take care of the people around us without understanding that we don't have the resources to understand how to get out of our PTSD mm -hmm. and our clinical depression and all of the, like the weird thought patterns that just keep on getting worse. Um, yeah. So I, I, uh, there I can, I think that's an excellent analogy. Mm. Um, he also wanted to know specifically, what was it like to learn that Joan Baez wanted to cover your aging well, and then to be able to sing it with her? Why is it that as we grow older and stronger, the road signs point us adrift and make us afraid, saying you never can win? Watch your back, where's your husband? I don't like the signs that the sign makers mean. So I'm gonna steal out with my paint, my brushes. I'll change the directions, I'll hit every street. It's the Dancehall Town scandal. The Robin Hood vandal, she goes out and steals the king's English. In the morning you wake up and the saints point to you, they say, I'm so glad that you finally made it here. You thought nobody cared, but I did, I could tell. And this is your year, and it always starts here and oh, I mean, I'm, I don't, I'm guessing she is a, uh, you know, a, a foremother, 
for you. Yeah. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm, we're, yeah, we're making yeah. it up. Okay, there we you know go. what I mean? Yeah. A touchstone. Yeah. She, oh, yeah. She, um, it, you know, not only what's amazing about Joan is that there's probably some um, circularity, like sh- the re- her being such a strong figure in my life might have been the reason that she and I ended up singing the song together insofar as um, not only was, you know, were folk singers kind of heroes in, in my hand, were the heroes, I also, um, there was this one day I was home from school and I was, I pulled out my parents' um, old Judy Collins and Joan Baez records and listened to them and really took in the lyrics for the first time, even though I'd memorized them long ago. And, you know, there's Joan and Judy singing about life and death. You know, they're singing Leonard Cohen songs and Bob Dylan songs and Joni Mitchell songs. And um, and I thought, oh my gosh, like they're writing about stuff that they believed was life or death. And that very much was the late 60s. Like people like, I have to write a song because I got to save the world. And and some of it was like, we got to have peace and I'm going to play it on an out-of-tune guitar. But it's a lot of it was actually, um, I mean, even if it was a love song, they felt like we are helping to move the wheel of culture and meaning. And this is our responsibility. Like Peter Yarrow told me that people used to call him the rabbi. You know, he was in his 20s. <laughs> but in a world broken open to new ways of looking at um, the cosmos and at religion itself, like <laughs> he was like the rabbi of his time. So um, uh, I love that the way that they invested, these young people invested themselves with that much importance. And I think that that really influenced um, my kind of going for it uh, and then coming to Boston in the, the 90s and hearing people really going for it, like writing the songs that, that mattered to them, as I have named my retreat. And um, so Joan gave me permission to kind of do that and to dig in a little bit and to write a song called You're Aging Well when my 27-year-old boyfriend had left me for a 20-year-old and, uh, <laughs> and yeah. I was 25. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it w- And it was an incredible moment to um, uh, when she invited me to do it. And I, I really have to give her credit because she was doing this album with Mary Chapin Carpenter and Mary Black and Indigo Girls and Janice Ian and um, having these nights at, at uh, the bottom line singing songs together and um, being letting herself be convinced by my fantastic um, <laughs> record company owners, Cliff and Craig. Uh-huh. <laughs> Her manager, they worked with her manager on a project, not with her, um, uh-huh. but they. he was in the office and he told them that Joan was doing this project, uh, Joan's manager, and they were like poking him and like, look, Dar gets into this tiny Honda. You know? <laughs> <laughs> she goes from place to place. Like she is the real deal. She's really uh-huh. doing this. And she's <laughs> she's really green and like it's dented. And I mean, she, you know, this. if Joan did this, she would be, this would be, her discovery you know uh-huh. And, and uh-huh. If, if she if she took a chance on this kid um uh-huh. that would be kind of in keeping with what she's done before <laughs> with yeah great luck with other people <laughs> and um <laughs> and she did you know yeah. and not because she wanted to be on brand you know she uh-huh. really listened to it and she said you know what i'll, I'll make this work and we'll make That's this great. and i'll bring this kid up on stage and hopefully she can keep it together and, and I did. So she took me around the world. Yeah. She took me to Europe and she took me around the United States. And it, it absolutely, people still show up. I would say yeah. one person per concert at least says, I saw you first with Joan. That's right. 
it's so nice when these people kind of take you under their wing. Um, I speaking of collaborations, you've had some good ones. I mean, there's uh, Suzanne Vega, there's John Hall. Yeah, I, you were on his last album. He's been on here before. I, you write in the book about writing um, "Summer Child" with Rob Hyman. Yeah. Can you remind us that story real quick? It's the stormy season Lightning flashes through the air And the water bugs are busy spinning backwards in the rain The summer child is running, the summer child is running again The summer child is running, the summer child is running again Yeah, he was he was so good at, at um, first of all, he was really good at going like, do you, do you need lunch? You know, look, we've been uh, doing this for two hours. Like, let's uh, let's we're not getting anywhere. We can. He was good at kind of keeping it light, and um, and he. So I I was thinking, I came down to him with just some child is running, some child is running, so. uh-huh. <laughs> and um, and and he just. <laughs> I'll just sing this and I'll play, uh, you know, um, like, summer child is running, summer child is running. And he's like, mm hmm, mm hmm. And he just starts to play it, you know, and he's just, and he's looking at me and I'm looking at him. And he, you know, he, it's like, we're not going to give it a name yet. Uh-huh. And, and so, and I, but then I said, you know, I, um, uh, I, I just saw my kids, you know, he just takes it in and he's like playing the chords, you know, so, so I'm talking to him and he's like going, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And just playing along on his piano, and um, I said, I saw. God, we did this summer camp called. Um, well, I, I there was this collective we tried. I mean, a total disaster. Called we uh-huh. called it uh, Pack of Wolves. But we uh-huh. had seven year old kids, and I was like, let's just be like a bunch of parents and like two parents for every ten kids. Uh-huh. And it turned out to like three adults for every one kid. The kids were oh, so boy. high maintenance, but oh, we <laughs> it was also great and. Um, everything fell apart but so there's one of these days and we had just tried to do some activity like take them to bear mountain and show uh-huh. this and, and it was semi-successful but we come back and we're all sitting on my porch like man there's a reason people are camp counselors and we're not yeah. and yes. the kids i was like <laughs> and, and the kids are waiting for their parents to pick them up and i and i just was like oh, here's a badminton racket oh, here's a wiffle ball here's a and they created this whole world with these odd mismatched balls and rackets and sticks and and i had that moment where i when i just felt like it was so humid you know mm-hmm. that time stops and mm-hmm. i was just like this is it this is this is it someday mm-hmm. this won't be and mm-hmm. um and i brought that feeling down to rob and rob was just like uh-huh uh-huh like he's mm-hmm. just <laughs> mm-hmm. so we so um 
so summer so that's what's great about rob and he's you know he works with the hooters and yeah I oh i love it with, eric's yeah. been on here a couple of times fantastic yeah I, okay I, okay that's interesting i had a dream about him last night but oh um, is he He's still alive, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He spends. <laughs> his wife is Swedish, oh, and I they spend part of the time. Part because you, you had a dream about him last night. You wondered if he. I haven't I, seen anything on Twitter or anything that Eric Brazilian died. No, no, no. I hope no, not because I'm going to Philadelphia in November to see their show. I feel really guilty even saying that because I don't want people to think. But it was. A, I saw like a in my dream. I saw a Facebook post that was like, "I loved Eric." I was like, "What?" <laughs> And and I just realized, and I was like, oh, I gotta check that out. Um, so the great thing about Rob Hyman and the Hooters is that when you're in a band and you're and you've been in a band for forty years, you know, college through now, um, the way you make it is by having an incredibly respectful uh, way of interacting with each other, and of course, like all the wonderful shorthand that you have, like no, do that thing. Oh, that thing. Okay, I'll do that thing, and. Um, so they had all this shorthand when I saw them in the studio, but they were so like, okay, I'll try it. No, I don't mm -hmm. think it's okay. What about this? You know, the collaboration had so much, you know, they appreciated each other so much. And that's what Rob brought to me. Yeah. And, you know, who's not as, who's not Eric Bazilian and is not uh -huh. all of the great guys in the band. He, he was nodding his head like, hmm, that moment mm -hmm. that feels like a, you know, uh, it's it's kind of every time is like an ice cube that's melting but sometimes you can just freeze time a little and okay okay and and, and also kind of like whatever dar <laughs> like, like well let's figure out what the musical iteration is and um so we um so that's the great thing so we just we we did this for a long time like some each other's running some each other's running again and then um he uh he came up with this cool thing. So it goes, so much, and then he went, here she comes now. So he went out of the key. I call the name. I call keys the houses, you know, that I remember from the book. Yeah. And, and so he went to the neighbor house. So it's in, um, it's in the key of G, but, but we snuck over to the key of C's F, uh, the sun is shining and the summer child's running again. You know, so uh, he he had great ways of brightening things up um, to to uh, kind of challenge the ear in that good Beatlesy <laughs> pop way. Yeah, um, and um, and that's what he did. And we just kept on looking at each other like. Do we need more words here? No, we need less words. Like this thing's booking. The summer child's running. You know. <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. Yeah. That Good great. for you. Um, I was curious too about your choice in when you cover a song. Um, one in particular, "Troubled Times" by the Fountains of Wayne.
I love that song and I miss Adam. And um, I was imagining after reading your book, the threshold of quality that you must see in a song before you choose to cover it. Um, because you're so focused on songwriting and, and helping other people do the best of their potential to song to be a songwriter you must see something absolutely magical in a song before like troubled times before you choose to cover it and so i'm wondering what goes into your brain is it that i love this so much or i admire this or i think i can do it or i want to pay tribute what passes what makes it pass the test it's two things one is you know i love it so sometimes like um pierce pettis's song uh family like he's he does great you know there's no uh -huh. no problem there uh it's definitive it's it's yeah. but i just loved it and i wanted to um and you know pierce and i are sort of in the same world and and um he's more sort of in the southern folk world and i thought you know maybe i can bring this to more of the northern folk world and mm -hmm. although he's a nationally touring artist but uh, i there's just part of me that's just like i hopefully um i can bring something to it and um and help the world hear this song more but also i love it and i want to record it and 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 i feel it so much when i hear it and i'm amazed by how you know some that song's not got a lot of lyrics in it and yet it accomplishes so much and that's mm -hmm. just such a wonderful you know what a feat so um that was that when i was listening to comfortably numb yeah you know, i i was pretty sure that the, most of the world had already heard that song but uh -huh. i loved the unbelievable um you know like the the animus anima you know the 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 male and the female anima not anima um mm -hmm. uh, you know the male female parts of us the theme the, there was such a female spirit to to my mind of just that way of really recognizing the contrast between comfortably numb and what came before it You know, when I was a child, I had a fleeting glimpse out of the corner of my eye. I turned to look, and it was gone. And 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 it's like there's David Gilsmore's guitar, like gorgeously, like you know, playing it out. You know, stepping it out. And it, it's almost somebody said, "I'm so glad that you you took this song back 
from stoned teenagers in rec rooms. <laughs> you know, like, I really wanted to, to get that feeling that he had taken such care to, to uh, you know, excavate and put into this song. Yeah. Lyrically, beautifully, melodically consistent, like such a beautifully, beautiful yeah. melody. Uh, I wanted to... Um, to bring that anima to it. And I was like, well, I'm a girl, you know, uh -huh. so I'll, I'll bring the sort of that feminine thing. And then we asked Ani to, to do it without giving her any direction. And she just sent us back this CD that was brought all of the um, harmony and, and sort of alienation. Cause she's like sort of back as if she's singing from another room mm -hmm. and echoey stuff. She just sent this like CD back with a bunch of hearts on it. Like, Love Ani, here you go. How about that? <laughs> and like, we did some guitar stuff that we hadn't even uh -huh. asked her to do. That was like this whole, you know, all these great musicians. Like, whoa, that's going yeah. in. So sometimes I do sort of the the girl version, yeah, <laughs> of the song because it will automatically bring something out. Um, and and that and I'll feel like I can hit a different angle of the song. How about that? Right. That sounds good. It's interesting. You mentioned Boston. Are you familiar with a, a female singer-songwriter from that area named Mary Fall? You know Mary? Uh, yes. Well, she's from... Uh, she was in October Project. Yeah. yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I spoke to her. I had her on recently, and she also covers Comfortably Numb uh, in a recent covers album. And I just thought, what? Are women taking ownership of this song somewhere? What? What's the... Yes. Uh, Yes, it sounds <laughs> yeah, well, like it. Van Morrison did too. Actually, it's funny. I was listening to um, uh, the Van Morrison's version in a. I think it was Van Morrison in. Um, uh, I'm not anyway in, in a movie. Um, you know, with uh, Leonard DiCaprio and and I was like, they should have used mine because they, <laughs> they could have. It had sort of the toughness in it, and uh -huh. and really the song is just this incredible sad gentleness about it yeah. like that yeah. child and and when Almost i was like a lullaby yeah when i was a child i had a fever my hands uh -huh. felt like two balloons like i i just remembered like i i was sick a couple of times when i would have uh -huh. these fever dreams yeah. and there would be some song that would go through and and just become this like mark chagall painting of like a fever dream nightmare painting of people uh -huh. floating and, and they just did when i and my hands felt two balloons it's like well you did it that that's that that's like 48 hours of terror uh, uh -huh. <laughs> captured in half a line that's it and so so that deep poetry and that deep feeling for childhood and and that childhood innocence is really worth capturing acoustic you know with yeah. acoustic woody resonant instruments yeah. um because uh it deserves that credit and it deserves the incredible production that that Van Morrison and of course Pink Floyd gave it too Absolutely. because it's towering. It's also yes. a towering song. Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. Um, okay, last question. I've kept you longer than I thought I would. Uh, last question, and it's kind. Of, you can be as you know uh, in depth or whatever as you want about this. You touch on in the book several times about overcoming clinical depression, mm -hmm. and uh, I wondered how you did that. My therapist said it was only through therapy that it could happen and um and i was having a conversation with a great friend about 
bad therapists <laughs> recently, like how, how the weird model of like, I'm not supposed to let you know what I'm thinking, but you can totally tell what they're thinking. And it's so frustrating. And, you know, <clears throat> but maybe it's you're projecting, you know, we were just talking about how that whole model uh, is, is so fraught with, uh, you know, it's two humans in a room. Yeah. One of them is, you know, ostensibly trained in something, but we, it's a, an evolving science. So um, that said, the um the psychiatrist she saved my life she did a few things that were um that really were that made the difference you know i just like in the song about therapy you know i said well you know one of my parents i have uh you know a good relationship with and the other one is is much more um problematic so let's talk about the problematic one and she's like oh no let's talk about the good one you know mm -hmm. <laughs> and that turned out to be much more complicated you know so yeah. number one very yeah. freudian you know let's talk about your parents but it was yeah. very important the other um was that um there was a real like really looking at the fact that depression is anger turned inwards i mean i mm. i do believe the problem is you know asterisk it doesn't feel like anger so that's yeah. why you feel like a loser but there's some clue in it because you if there's a kind of a the world's not worth my waking up for mm -hmm. and i'm not worth the world like mm -hmm. it's not just i'm a loser it, there's something else going on in terms of your anger at the world yeah. and um and 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 how you feel betrayed and so mm -hmm. we really went into like where that anger might be and we found some real hornet's nests of fury mm -hmm. and they were and it was rage at things that didn't really deserve the rage and that's a problem you know you can be yeah. angry at your parent for having cancer or something yeah. which wasn't my story but it's like i'm not allowed to be angry at my parent for having cancer right but you are you know yeah. and it's like getting to the real truth it's really important so that was uh poking at that nest a bunch was important and then she was cool because i had these dreams um that we analyzed and it was like wait a minute because i was a playwright you know and i was like i wrote a scene that's basically like this paradigm this uh archetype you know played out and mm -hmm. i wrote it a year ago and so it's like that I got a fundamental sense that there was this inside me that was real, that was cool, that really saw the the terrain, and that was that part of my depression was that that inside part of me was so angry at the mm -hmm. outside part of me for saying, mm -hmm. you know, you know, I'm sure that that you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that that person has my best interests in mind, mm -hmm. and and the inside, you know, I'm sure that person's a very intelligent person who cares about me, and mm -hmm. the inside person was saying, okay. No offense to that person, but that person doesn't care about you, and that person is an idiot. Right. You know, like, like how could you have given that person so much power? You right. know, you have so much power. You're not an yeah. idiot. You know, yeah. and you keep on going, "Oh, I'm such an idiot." You know, you're not an idiot, yeah. you asshole. You know, like, <laughs> like the inside was saying, "Dar, you're uh -huh. so much cooler than," and you know it. You know that yeah. you, you know, you know how you've been able to you know, get through problems and solve problems and make uh -huh. friends and be okay and put your clothes on in the morning and get out of bed. Like, give yourself some damn credit. <laughs> so it was like, the dreamscape helped me understand that there was an inside there, that there was arguably a soul. And yeah. that piece of information, I mean, that's hard to communicate to a person. It has to be a revelation. But that revelation um, was a lifesaver. And that also... Uh, technically happened in therapy as well because dream 
to say I take your dream seriously is to say I, I take your unconscious and all of its intelligence seriously. Like your mm-hmm. your frontal lobes that you think you're thinking with are n- not the whole picture. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, so, you know, faith in myself was, was somehow uh, cultivated there as well. Wow. Good for you. Um, by the way, do you live in the Hudson River Valley? Yeah, I do. Okay. I always say where my guest is calling in from, and um, I would imagine that's how you know John Hall. Exactly. He was my congressman. Yeah, he was. That's right. That's right. I read his book, too. Uh, Anyway, thank you, Dar, for talking with me. I love what you do, and I'm grateful that you uh, keep doing it so well and that you've written this great book that hopefully inspires other people to aspire to be as good as you are at doing it. Well, thank you very much. This is a great interview. I appreciate it. All right, there you have it, Dar Williams. Again, the book is called How to Write a Song That Matters. And I just, she is such a great writer, so crystal clear, so introspective as well. And it's just, it's a real interesting peek behind the curtain for what creative songwriters go through when they're trying to find that song. And uh, I just love this book. It's great. Uh, I want to close it out with another song of hers that I really like called I Saw a Bird Fly Away. And I'm really grateful that lately we've been able to have people like Dar, Rebecca, Garrison, Glenn, going back even to Mary Fall, to feature these people who are still out there doing it, trying to find that song, find that next great song, and share it with all of you, and invent it, and workshop it, and get it just where it needs to be. That's such a fascinating process, and I'm glad we've been able to feature so many people like that lately. Um, Now... Next week's guest. <laughs> uh, next week's guest is somebody who many of you might see on your TVs just about every day, and I'll leave it at that. Hopefully, that doesn't give too much away. Um, you may have noticed I had promised a deep dive coming out this weekend. I screwed up. I forgot. I went out of town. I was. I forgot or thought I had sent uh, Yan the files to do that, and I didn't. So we should have two bonus things coming out this week. One is the deep dive on Talk Talk's Spirit of Eden album, which I mentioned earlier. And another I'm going to keep as a surprise. It's sort of a promo mode slash deep dive. I know not everyone listens to our promo mode episodes, but you're going to want to listen to this one. Because it's a, pre- it's a previous guest coming back to talk about this box set that is pretty awesome. And um, I think you'll be interested. Huge thanks, as always, to Yana Mamakiewicz for everything. Thank you, buddy, for all that you do. Um, guys, you can like our page on Facebook. You can send us a message on there. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. All right. Thanks everybody. We love you.